Well, good morning. How are y'all? Well, Kathy has picked out number 120 for us to start assembly with. That's work for the night is coming. So let's stand and sing number 120. Have we had any birthdays this week that we need to recognize? <coughs> any um, updates to the prayer list that we need for Mr. White in the morning service? All right. Well, y'all are a silent group this morning. You're probably still in the turkey coma from Thanksgiving. Well, Mr. White, if you'll dismiss us, we'll head to our classes. Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us. We thank you for um, the blessings of being able to gather with other believers to hear your word taught in spirit and in truth. We do pray, Father, that you give us attentive hearts this morning that we might receive the message that you prepare for us. Have us, Lord, honor you in the, in the days ahead. We pray these things in Jesus' name.
Okay, I think we're ready to begin. We're going to be uh, studying essentially the 21st chapter of the book of the Revelation where we're told, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Well, the message this morning is, is going to be focusing at the outset on something that has been a curiosity to me, uh, a concern of mine for many years. Uh, being a farm boy and being brought up on a farm, I, I grew up with animals, and I've always loved animals. My dad did. And uh, I did. And we've all had pets, most of us, uh, throughout our life. And, uh, and I don't think it's unreasonable to want to know what God's thoughts are about what He created. I mean, I have pets and I, and I love them. And uh, my wife, we, we love our animals, and, and um, <clears throat> it was certainly in the plan of God when He made the first heaven and the first earth to create animals for man's enjoyment and for fellowship. And... Uh, the Lord pronounced all His work as being good. And it was perfect. And it originated in the mind of the eternal God. And so, over the years, as I have studied this subject and come up with various thoughts about it, I've been, I've been turned away by some Christians but more than anyone else, preachers, when I would try to broach this subject, they, they would shut me down and, and they would say, well, you know, that may be or may not be what you're saying, uh, but our primary focus is preaching the gospel and focusing on uh, the simple plan of salvation and that kind of thing. Well, in my view, and you may disagree with me, I don't know. I'm, I'm just uh, trying to teach the Bible and the whole counsel of God. And I can tell you that I don't care who the preacher is on the face of the earth. If he doesn't study the whole counsel of God, he's going to miss some major things about the person of God. And so, God has created everything to, in some way, communicate to us something about Himself. And He said that in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. From the invisible things uh, of God, uh, from the creation of the world, are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power 
and Godhead so that they are without excuse. And so, uh, God is telling us, if you want to know something about me, and you've never seen me because I'm invisible, but if you want to really know me, then look at what I made. Look at what I made. Because the invisible things of myself are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. He didn't say one thing that I made, and that's you. He said everything that I made. And so I am not apologizing to anybody for devoting a certain poor portion of the ministry that the Lord has given me and teaching uh, the importance of uh, of everything that he created. <clears throat> because, in some way, it gives us insight into the person of God so that we can know him better. And I'm telling you that it's a great mistake to not see the... Uh, the things pertaining to God in terms of the creation of the animal kingdom and all his creatures, whatever they are, that creep upon the face of the earth, they're all important in the mind of God or he would not have created them. And so to say, okay, certain things God has said is important to me, but other things are not that important to me, is to say in the most insulting way to God, well, okay, some of the things you created are of value to me, but the other things, I'm not even going to think about them, and I'm not going to study them. That's an insult. That's an insult to God. And so I'm going to share with you this morning a few things that I've learned from Scripture. And if you can figure out a way to disprove any of these things, I welcome that. I don't know everything. I'm learning every day. But I do try to base everything that I say from this pulpit on Scripture. And I'm going to do that today. One of the things that I have enjoyed over the years is reading the commentaries and the uh, the King James Bible and the commentaries of Dr. Henry Morris. And I have many of his books that I've read over the years. Uh, one of them is the Genesis Record, and he gives some amazing insight. And in so many ways, he touches on things that have occurred to me privately as I've studied the Bible before I even knew there was a Dr. Henry Morris. Um, but one of the things that he says in his uh, Genesis record book, commenting on Genesis chapter 1 and verses 20 through 23, where God is creating these creatures, the animals in the world, whether it's uh, horses or cows or sheep or the birds in the heavens or the fish in the sea. God created all of these things. 
And the Bible tells us, uh, and if you look these words up and study it in the original language and so forth, you'll find that life is the same word that is used in Scripture for soul. Well, we usually think of the physical body and the spiritual dimension. And so God has revealed this to us. There's an invisible world and there's a physical world and there are these two dimensions. And if we're going to understand life, we've got to see it from God's perspective in terms of what he says. And so God created these two dimensions uh, as it relates to uh, man and the animal kingdom. And when God imparted life uh, into Adam, as I've pointed out to you before, he created him out of the dust of the ground and he was standing in front of the Creator God, dead. Absolutely dead. Just like a corpse in a coffin. Adam was dead. And then the Bible gives us a second step and says that God breathed into Adam the breath of life. Life. And Adam became a living soul. And so breath of life and soul are synonymous in Scripture. And so what I've tried to teach myself and ourselves is that animals are not just a physical dimension. They're also a spirit dimension as well, compacted together into one. And one of the things that we've learned is that what God joins together, let no man put asunder. And God never intended to separate the soul from the physical body of man or animals. He never intended death. God is not the author of death. It was not in his thoughts in the beginning. And so when it comes to death, whether it's man or animal, how did that originate? And the Bible is very clear. It originated with the sin of Adam. And so the sin of Adam resulted in death, and the sin of Adam was passed upon all men and creation. So much so that the animal kingdom became victims of Adam's and Eve's crime. And so the sinner that caused the problem was man. But the thing that's important to realize, and it's a tremendous oversight to not see what I'm fixing to tell you, animals did not sin. They never have. But the sin of Adam was passed upon 
the animal world, the animal kingdom, being innocent. And so the question is why? Why? Well, as I'm going to point out to you, all throughout Scripture, the Lord would illustrate amazing truths by understanding and studying something about the animal kingdom. And here's what you're going to learn. Guarantee it. If you study it and you think about it, you won't be able to disagree with it because it's right here in the book. Why did John the Baptist announce Jesus Christ as being the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world? Why in the Old Testament do you have the sacrifice of lambs and bullocks and rams and goats and doves? Why do you have that? Well, they're innocent. But they were types of Jesus Christ who was also innocent. He didn't sin. Neither did the animals. It's as clear as it can be in Scripture. The animals did not sin. Neither did Jesus Christ. And God would use the animal kingdom as types of his own innocence. Who in the world can say that's not true? <laughs> I don't know how in the world he can. I don't know how a preacher can turn away from a conversation like this and say, oh, well, it's not that important. Yes, it is. It was so important that John the Baptist, the greatest prophet, the Bible says, uh, that ever lived. He preached it and said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Why? Because in the Old Testament, they offered up thousands and thousands and thousands of rams and shed their blood because they were types of the innocent Lamb of God. And these animals were innocent because they were types of Christ. So whether it's the bullock or the lamb or the goat uh, or a dove, they're innocent. And when we go out here into the world, and I think I mentioned this last week, and we see one of God's creatures. And they're so cute. I mean, they're so beautiful when you look at them. And they're so innocent. You look in their eyes and you can see that they want to live just like we do. And all of a sudden, one of them will run across the road and get run over. And we say, oh no, if, listen, if you're a person that loves animals, it breaks your heart. It does mine. Uh, if I see a squirrel get run over or a rabbit or a deer get hit, it breaks my heart. So why does God allow this to happen? That's the question. Why does God allow innocent animals to suffer? The answer is so simple. If you study the Bible, you'll understand that the animals are types of Christ, the innocent one. And every time you see that squirrel get run over or that 
cute little rabbit. God has put it in the world so that we'll never forget the question. What is the question? The question is, why do the innocent suffer? Well, ultimately, that's to bring us to Christ and the foot of the cross and to stand there and look at Him and say, why would the innocent suffer? And folks, it's because of the love of God. He loved us so much, the innocent one was willing to go through the cross of Calvary and die in our place that we might have life as a free gift from Him. What an insight that is into the person and nature and character of God. That is this kind of person. Why? There's none like Him in the universe that He would do such a thing. And yet He did it, did it willingly. He did it willingly. And so... I want to take you to, uh, and I think I did this last week, but I, I need to show you this again. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. So it's important to notice these things, and, and that's why we're noticing them. Because I want to prove to you that what you're hearing is the truth. It's absolutely the truth. Ecclesiastes chapter... 3 and verse 18. I said in my heart concerning the estate of the sons of men that God might manifest them that they might see that they themselves are beasts. So he says they're beasts. This is Solomon in his wisdom and he's making a parallel between man and animals. Verse 19, for that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts. Even one thing befalleth them. As the one dies, so dieth the other. Yea, they have all one breath or life, which is the same thing as soul, so that a man has no preeminence above a beast for all his vanity. So Solomon is here writing from the standpoint of the human perspective of the world and life. It's not the perspective of God. There are two perspectives in Scripture, and you have to always study the Bible considering which perspective is being embraced here. Is it man looking at the world, trying to understand it without God? Or is it God revealing His perspective so that we can understand it from his perspective. Well, when you read Ecclesiastes, it's from man, man's perspective. What do we know from our perspective? Very little. All we know is we die, the animals die, the trees die, every living thing dies. And that's all we see. But this is not God's perspective. If you don't understand that point, you're going to miss out on really grasping how God writes because He writes this book to us from two perspectives. One of them is addressing what we see. But what do we see? 
not much of anything. We can't really arrive at the truth even if we spend our life studying. We'll be ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. But if we realize the value of this book, that there's only one resource we can appeal to to get an answer that's always going to be right. And it's from God's perspective by way of His revelation from heaven. We have to read the Bible to know the truth so that we can stop ever learning and never being able to come to a knowledge of the truth. So, as we read Ecclesiastes chapter 3, you have to understand that it's man's perspective as he's looking out in the world and what he sees is there's really no difference between man and animals. They both die. But that's not the main thing I want to show you. That's just one of the things I want to show you. Look at verse 20. From man's perspective, all go into one place. All are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. That's man's perspective. But then it says in verse 21, Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward, and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth? Now, A careless reader is not going to see this. But I'm praying that we're not careless readers. We're being very careful about every word of God. Every word is very important. So much so, he said, do not add to or take away from the words of the prophecy of this book. Every word is eternally important. And so, Solomon is telling us something here that's really from the perspective of God. So there's a slight shift here. And what he's telling us is something that we didn't know. We can't look into the spirit world. I'm going to tell you something, folks. Apart from this book, There is no way that you can know that you have a soul. There's no way that you can know that you have a spirit. There's no way that you can know that you are a composite of two dimensions, spirit and physical. You cannot. Darwinian evolutionism disallows a spirit dimension. And in accordance with biological evolutionism, you live and you die. And the most morality you can squeeze out of that doctrine or philosophy of life or worldview uh, is survival of the fittest. That's the most in the form of morality that you can squeeze out of Darwinian evolution. It's survival of the fittest. And so if a lion goes out here and catches a 
a gazelle or something like that and eats it, it's not good or evil. It's just an event. You have to eat to live. If a man goes out here and robs a bank, it's neither good nor evil. It's just an event. If a man takes a gun and kills somebody, it's not good or evil. It's just an event. If a meteor collides with the earth, it's not good or evil. It's just an event. If a man rapes a woman, it's not good or evil. It's just an event. And this is what's taught in the public school system. And it's turning the whole culture into monsters of iniquity that have no basis for right doing as compared to what people say is wrong. I read a book when I was in the university uh, by Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher, because called Beyond Good and Evil. Beyond Good and Evil. And basically what he was teaching is, if there is no God, we're beyond the idea of good and evil. We're in a world where good and evil do not exist. Only events exist. And the only meaning that you can really get out of life is what you can enjoy for the moment. Because, like the Bible says, we don't know what tomorrow may bring. It may bring death. And so, we've got a little short time on earth to get our pleasure. But according to Darwinian evolutionism, the only thing that matters in life is you. And what you want and your will being done. That's what's being taught to children in the public school system. That is why we're going to have this big event up here, December the 3rd, where you've got all this confusion and these people living like beasts. Living like beasts. Where nudity is not wrong. Transgender is not wrong. Uh, transdressing is not wrong. Homosexuality and lesbianism is not wrong. We're all free to do what we want to do. There is no morality. There is no good or evil. What is good is you doing what you want to do with your free will. The problem with that is the freedom of one person becomes the bondage of the neighbor. If you're a married couple and you're blessed to have a little daughter and the man across the street is an evolutionist and doesn't believe there's any such thing as good or evil and he decides he wants to Use your little daughter in human trafficking. Or objectify her. Turn her into just an object. Just flesh. That's all she is, just flesh. And have sex with her. Or if you have a little boy and, and the man becomes a priest or a Baptist preacher and decides he wants to have sex with the boy. 
Uh, tell you something, if you don't believe the message of this book, you will find yourself doing evil. And that's what's going on in the world today. And we're in a warfare as those who believe the message of this book that good and evil is defined by God. But if you don't believe there's a God out there, then we're free to do whatever is right in every man's eyes. If there is no God, then the center of the universe is you. And it's not God's will be done. It's my will be done. If there is no God, what could be more logical than that? But this is what they believe. There is no God. But if there is a God, He's conveniently crafted in their own mind in such a way that they project onto God how they want Him to be. Well, how convenient is that? That's what God described as idolatry. The creating of a God that is not God. And that's why in Isaiah he said, there's no, no God beside me. I am God. And so, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, going back to that, we learn that animals uh, consist of two dimensions, physical and spiritual. They've got a spirit, and it says so. Verse 21, Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward, and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward? Well, this is giving the idea that man is a step above an animal and that his spirit is going to go up. That's what we want to believe anyway. But the spirit of the, the beast goes down. But how long does the spirit stay down? Have you ever thought about asking that question? Does the spirit of the animal cease to exist? What basis do we have in Scripture to believe that the spirit of an animal ceases to exist? When life, now listen to this, because it's very important. The only life that this Bible talks about is the life that comes from God. And I submit to you something that cannot be refuted. There is but one kind that has ever had, and it's eternal. Eternal life. And when God created the world and created the animals, He didn't intend for them to die. He didn't impart to the animals or to man some principle of death because God is life. And what He wanted was life. Everlasting life. He wanted every animal that He first created to live forever. That was the will of God. Anybody that doesn't believe that, they don't know God. Not the way He's revealed Himself in this book, they don't know Him. They're ignorant of God if they don't believe this. They're ignorant of God. And they're not studying carefully the Bible. 
if they do not believe that God intended for everything to live forever. It was only with the sin in the Garden of Eden that sin and death entered in. And we're totally responsible for it. And God has allowed that principle of death that we brought on the whole creation to be left in perpetual remembrance by man. Why? So that we would never forget what we did. And out here in the world, we would, we would see death all around us. We'd see everything dying. And we would never forget why. God is not the author of that, my friends. He is not the author of that. We are. We're the monsters of iniquity that have brought on death in the world and the suffering that is in the world. It's not God. And so the only kind of life that God has ever given is eternal life. Um... Let's see. So, once again, let me emphasize here that when you see animals die, even when we eat them, when we kill them to eat, you remember John's Gospel, chapter 6? The Lord was talking to the Jews and the disciples were there. And He said... Except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And it offended people. They couldn't understand why that was. But what the Lord was teaching us was you cannot eat the blood or eat the flesh of a of a lamb, an actual lamb, an animal, and have eternal life. You can't drink the blood of an Old Testament animal because if you do, according to my law, you'll be cut off. You'll be killed because you cannot drink the blood of an animal and have everlasting life. But he changed it into something that the Jewish mind was offended by. And he said, but you drink my blood. Why? Because all the Old Testament animals were types foreshadowing the one lamb that could save our soul, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ distinguished himself from all the previous lambs. And this is what John meant when he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And that same Lamb, Jesus Christ, made this statement in John's Gospel, chapter 6. Read it for yourself. He that eateth not my flesh and drinketh my blood, which was forbidden in the Old Testament, he has no life in him. But if you eat my flesh and you drink my blood, then the benefit is everlasting life. What was he talking about? He was talking about the two dimensions, and he made it clear in that chapter. He said, The words that I speak unto thee, they are spirit, and they are life. 
He wasn't talking about cannibalism. He wasn't talking about literally sitting down and eating the flesh of Jesus Christ as is uh, taught in the Catholic Church. When you take that bread, it actually turns into the body of Jesus Christ. That's not true. That's not biblical. That's a failure to understand the Scriptures. The Lord said the words that I speak in it, they are spirit and they are life. The Lord was saying the only way you can have spiritual life, eternal life, is to believe that I am that bread which came down from heaven. And if you don't eat this bread, if you don't eat my flesh spiritually, you're going to die. What was he talking about? He was talking about the sacrifice he was fixing to make on Calvary's cross. If we don't feed upon that death, as him dying in our place, we're going to lose our soul forever. That's what he's talking about. He was also talking about if you do not understand that the shedding of blood is what causes death, but I'm going to shed my blood in your place so that you can live, but I'm going to die. And he did. And his blood was shed on Calvary's cross. The Lord wants us to eat that or drink that blood in recognition that he was dying in our place. Rather than our soul leaving our body as a result of bleeding to death, he did. He bled to death in our, in our place. And He gives us the gift of everlasting life. He wants us to drink that blood. Why? Because when we sit down at the table and eat, we know that the result is life. If you don't eat and drink, you will die. Jesus Christ is using an earthly symbolism to teach us eternal truth. If we do not eat this message, take it in spiritually, and drink this blood, we're going to die spiritually. We'll starve to death. And that's what the Lord is teaching us. So this is why this teaching about the two dimensions is so critically important. There's a physical world and a physical dimension. We know we got to eat to live. But the Lord is teaching us we have to do certain things in the spirit world to live as well. We need to receive this book, the message of this book. The death of Jesus Christ upon Calvary's cross, why did he die? Because he died in our place. And so, let's go to, we run out of time so quick. Uh, let's go to Romans chapter 8. I want to show you these verses because I'm telling you, they're some of the most misunderstood words in all the Word of God. is right here in Romans chapter 8. And I believe if you will think about what's being said, all of a sudden you're going to see 
the truth of what's actually being said here by the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 8, <clears throat> beginning at verse 18, for sake of time, let's begin there. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now, so he's talking about the future here and the glory, the future glory that we're going to one day see. And then he says in verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creature. Now, what is that? What in the world is an earnest expectation? Well, an earnest expectation presupposes that there's something out there that's expecting something. Well, how can you expect something if you're dead? Well, think about it. For the earnest expectation of the creature, that's referring to the created world, the created animals, the creeping things even, anything that has life. For the earnest expectation... Of the animals, if we can say that, waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. So, how can you expect something in the future if you're not even existing to expect it? That's point number one. Well, the manifestations of the sons of God is the future of those that put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ because we're going to be conformed to His image. We're going to be like Him in the future. And not only that, God is going to put us on a, in, a, in a new earth where everything is recreated. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you this now because I don't want to forget it. Don't miss this. When God first created the heavens and the earth, there was no one to observe it. Not even the angels. The proof of that is in Ezekiel 28, if you want to see the proof. God told Lucifer, who was the archangel, in the day that I created thee. Well, when did he create him? Well, it tells us in the books of Moses that in six days God created everything that is in heaven and that is in earth. That included the angels. The angels were not there to see God create. He created them at some point in the sixth day of creation. That's what the Bible teaches, actually teaches but no one was there as an observer of him creating. They had to believe that God was the creator. Well, anybody who believes that God is the creator has to believe that he is God and there's none beside him. Lucifer didn't. And he would not, by faith, believe that God was the creator. He believed that he was equal with God. God created him. He that cometh to God must believe that he is. 
He's God and there's none else. The day that you believe that, you will not try to go into the temple of God declaring yourself to be God. Lucifer was not observer, an observer of the creation. So here's my point. When you come to Revelation chapter 21, now don't miss this. We have eternal life at that point. We've been conformed to the image of the Son of God and we're going to be able to see Him create the new heavens and the new earth. Now the Bible doesn't say that. It doesn't have to. Logic demands it. There's not a person on the face of the earth that can say that what you just heard is not true. Not with the Bible in hand, it cannot. Because when God raises us from the dead, and we're already raised from the dead, and we're with Christ, and He said, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee, we're going to be standing right there in the family of God, as the sons of God, the children of God, watching God create the new heavens and the new earth. It's right here in the book. How can we not see that? And what all is going to be in that new heaven and that new earth? I'll tell you what I believe. All of those creatures that had that earnest expectation of deliverance. Those spirits that went down, that went down into the grave, what you might say, many commentators believe that what that means is they cease to exist. That's Darwinian evolution as related to what this book teaches about the Creator God who imparts only eternal life. Every animal that God ever created, we're going to see them again. Absolutely. I don't think there's any doubt about it whatsoever. And people say, well, that would be a lot of things. Folks, the new heaven and the new earth is going to be enormous. Now listen to this part. Do we really believe that when God created the first heaven and the first earth there was no border? When somebody brings up the subject and says, I don't believe there'd be enough room for all the horses that have ever lived and all the animals and all the cats and the tigers and the monkeys and the giraffes and the elephants and all this. Folks, aren't we just contradicting the doctrine that we teach that when God created the universe, it was as big as He is? Well, if it's a mirror of everything God is, then creation is eternal. It has no border. It has no border. Is there enough room in eternity for all of the life that God has given life to? Listen, why is this difficult to understand or believe? It just blows my mind that we don't become excited about it, that God 
who told us, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love Him, that this God of love who loved everything He ever created, do you think man and the sin of Adam could prevent the will of God being done? That's ludicrous. That's insane. There's nothing that can prevent the will of God. And God's will from day one when He created the animals was for them to be forever. And there's nothing that can be done to prevent that from happening. And so, God originally intended for us to be created in His image. We're sitting here in this church as those professing to be saved. And so we're basically saying God, by His wondrous gift, has created me in His image. And I now have as a result of the gift of God His holiness, His unblameableness, his unreprovableness as I exist in His sight. I have been made equal with everything that God is in His nature and in His character. And we believe that. How else could we enter into this eternal new earth without reintroducing sin into the world if we were not conformed to the very image of Jesus Christ who cannot sin. This is why death is the most wonderful thing. Because death itself frees us from the bondage of this present life. To enter into that endless eternal life and eternal world that the Bible says is forever. It's everlasting. It's everlasting. And it's going to be perfect. There'll be no tears, no crying, no pain, no death. Everything that God originally intended we're going to have. I haven't got but just a minute or two left before we're out of time. Turn with me right quick. I'm going to leave you with a thought. Jeremiah chapter 3. I'm going to tell you something else. That I I know it's, it's something that a lot of people have never really thought about, but it's right here in the book. And the only reason I'm thinking about it is because it's right here in the book. And I want to give you something else to think about in terms of that etern eternity when we're in this new heaven and this new earth. It's Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 16. 
And it shall come to pass when ye be multiplied and increased in the land, in those days, saith the Lord, they shall say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Now I want you to understand what the ark was. The ark was a coffin. That's what it was. If you look up the word, that's what it means. The ark and the term coffin is the actual definition of the ark. In the ark was placed the manna that the children of Israel fed upon, which was a type of Christ. It also had in it Aaron's rod that budded. A rod is a branch that's cut off, but it budded, and that's a picture of resurrection. That ark also had the Ten Commandments in it. Jesus Christ was the only one that ever kept the law. And so the coffin is a picture of Jesus Christ who is the bread of life, He's the resurrection, and He's the only one who ever kept the law and never sinned, not once. But He's telling us here that the ark of the covenant of the Lord Neither shall it come to mind, neither shall they remember it, neither shall they visit it, neither shall that be done anymore. What is he telling us? I'm going to tell you what I think he's telling us. There's something that God can do that we're not capable of, but he can because he's God. And with him all things are possible. Let me tell you what it is. He can forget things on purpose and never remember it again. You know what that is? Sin. And he said it. He said, I will remember their sin no more. God said that. Did he lie? Or did he tell the truth? He told the truth. He said, I'll take it and put it into the depths of the sea where nobody can find it. I will separate it from you as the perpetrator of the crime of crucifying me as far as the east is from the west, which is eternity. Can God do that? Absolutely He can do that. I believe... In the new heaven and in the new earth, we're not going to remember Christ dying on the cross for us. And I'll tell you why. We're going to have the mind of Christ. If He can't remember, neither can we. Is it in the book? Well, I just read it to you. It's in the book. Listen to me, folks. Can you imagine marrying somebody when you've messed up in your relationship in the marriage and the, 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 the husband says, okay, well, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to forgive you. But ever so many years after you're into the marriage, you know it's in his mind. 
Wouldn't it be better if you really believed that that husband had the power to never remember you having ever done anything wrong? Folks, that's the way it's going to be in the new earth. There's going to be no remembrance whatsoever. The only memory God is going to have of you and me having put our faith and trust in Him is our birth from the dead. Now, if that's the only thing He remembers, our birth from the dead, then we're born from the dead as holy as He is. It's the beginning of our life in the mind of God. That is the beginning of life. It wasn't when we were first born in sin. This is what God was talking about to Nicodemus when He said, you must be born again. When we're born again the second time, that is the only birth that God is ever going to acknowledge ever existed. Now, if you'll jot this down in your memory, go and read it. It's Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54. And I better tell you the verse because if I don't, uh, Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 54 and verse 4. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame. For thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood, which is the cross of Calvary, where the killed, where the Jews killed the Savior. You're not going to remember it anymore. Do you believe that? That our relationship with the Lord is going to be like that? No remembrance even of His death on the cross. Now the everlasting covenant, i got to say this, the everlasting covenant, people say, well you're not saying it right because the everlasting, how can you have an everlasting covenant? Folks, the everlasting covenant is the effects it's the effects is everlasting. The thing that is done away is the memory. The memory. Even of the cross. It's not going to be remembered anymore. Well, a lot to think about. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for these moments we've had. Erase from our minds anything that's wrong and teach us that we might know you better. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.